Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. It's going to be a heartache tonight if I don't get to listen to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank the Eagles for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a raw bone podcast. Before we get rolling, I want to invite everyone to join our Facebook page. Not only do we talk a lot of wrestling, but it's where a lot of people learned that Lincoln Riley took the USC job and left Oklahoma. I have a Twitter connection that can help me out with that. So speaking of Twitter, also follow me on Twitter. Just search the name John McAdam. I haven't even introduced myself, but that's who I am this week. And yeah, follow me on Twitter. I don't just stick to wrestling, but like I said, you got a good football scoop if you follow me. Before we get rolling, I want to thank Chris Salestad. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly for his generous donation to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. If you want to donate a large amount, that's even better, but even a small amount my PayPal address is Pro Wrestling Archives, all one word, at gmail.com. And with that, I want to bring on a popular guest, Brad Brightsman. Brad and I were talking, uh, what was the movie we were talking about? Fast Times at Ridgemont High before we got rolling. And I want to we, throw in a controversial opinion, okay? We were Phoebe, riffing, Cates, yeah. Phoebe Cates yeah. was not as hot as the other chick. Like, the other chick was a smoke show. I'm trying to remember her name. Jen- Jennifer Jason Lee. Yeah. I agree with that. I agree with that. It is an unpopular opinion, but I I thought the blonde was hotter, and usually I don't. Well, I I don't want to be in bad taste, but, you know, of course, the masturbation scene was in there with with her. um, Well, you can't uh, do that to your own sister. No. I think. No. (laughs) Not okay. We're (laughs) after a roaring start here, folks. All right. Another reason you should be on our Facebook page is we often take questions from our listeners on a subject that we're going to talk about. Brad is an AWA expert, grew up in Minnesota, couldn't take his eyes off the AWA. So we're going to take the questions from our listeners about the AWA. Brad, what's the first question you'd like to answer? Well, there's kind of a cluster of questions that we've got to get out of the way right away. We might have 55 minutes left after this. I don't know. The Greg Gagne situation. We got to talk about the high flyers and Greg Gagne. Jamal okay. Artis. Hope I'm saying that right. Jamal Artis. High flyers, overrated, underrated, or just right? Tim Tetralt says, was Greg Gagne better than he gets credit for? And there I are feel a, a rant coming others. here. There are a few others there. The situation with the High Flyers and Greg Gagne, and it's the only the only problem with with that that tag team was Greg Gagne's physique. I think that's that's really the the, the shortcoming there. It's why nobody or a lot of people don't take them as seriously as they probably deserve to be taken. I thought they were an outstanding tag team in the ring. Their work was great. You know, you talk about I guess a run from about seventy four to about 83 they were uh prevalent they didn't get the titles till 77 so they gave him some time before they gave it to him right away but a lot of people dog on greg Gagne, and i i i think that the rambo situation doesn't help later in the career 
But um, I think that they were a great tag team. I think they would have worked in any territory. Talking-wise, Greg Gagne was a much better talker than Jim Brunzel. Although Jim Brunzel did call uh, Adnan Casey a son of a bitch on live time, not on live TV, but on the uh, on the AWA television interview after they lost the belts to Blackwell and Patera. And he even says, you can edit that out if you want. I've, I have versions of it with edited and not edited. But Brunzel really couldn't talk. Greg was a pretty intense talker. They were both great in the ring. Seek out the Santana Martel AWA. 82 series if you want to see some clinics uh so that's kind of my take on that we could go on with greg forever but you know that's just kind of my overall take i think his physique hurt him more than anything else his physique hurt him but I, and this is going to surprise you your pal kevin Saruti. yeah uh, i don't know if i got got it from him directly or indirectly probably indirectly but he made a two or three dvd set of the high flyers greg Gagne and jim brunzel Mm-hmm. There are people who say they were as good as the Rock and Roll Express. I don't think they were as good as the mm-hmm. Rock and Roll Express, but they were really, really good. They were like 90, 95% as good as the Rock and Roll Express. So mm-hmm. I agree with you, and I am glad that I got to see that footage. And because, like I said, they were really impressive. I agree that Ganya's physique wasn't quite championship material, but. Even like I noticed he was small, but he wasn't too small, in my opinion. Yeah. And, you know, Brunzel doesn't make any bones about the fact that Brunzel was juicing his whole career. And, you know, that doesn't really help when Greg was not. But, yeah, uh, as, his as entire far as career. Rocket, I believe so. Wow. That surprises me. I got me. that in an interview that I'd have to pick out. Maybe maybe not quote me on that, but I believe okay. that's correct. Because Brunzel was a a pretty big boy from the beginning, from 74 when he came out of camp. So, And then the Rock and Roll Express, yeah, that's a great, great, great comparison. Rock and Roll Express, I think, were a little more one-dimensional in the fact that Ricky Morton got the piss beat out of him for a long time. Yeah, same match every time. Yeah, but they were great. They, they They were excellent. And I think that the High Flyers were, you know, less prolific. But I think that they, they were just as good once the bell rang. Maybe they had a different matches for sure. But, um, yeah, they were excellent. Here's how highly I think of Jim Brunzel, in my yeah. opinion. Right around 81, 82, I mean, I only knew them from the magazines. But I was like, you know, this is the guy they should put the title on. And turns out mm. Brunzel was an excellent worker. And, you know, he's a good-looking guy. I mean, he seemed marketable. They just never... The wrestling business, I, basically, I think Jim Brunzel was very underrated, and both the AWA and the WWF could and should have done more with him. I need to research more on his mid-Atlantic run, 79-ish, 80. Yeah. When Greg Gagne was, was doing the program with Bobby Heenan uh, in AWA land, Jim Brunzel, who was from White Bear Lake, was, which is local here, he went down to the mid-Atlantic, and he held the, the belt down there. I believe he had a run with it, the title. And I, I don't, I need to, I need to learn more about that. That's something I need to be more of a student of that run. Um, don't really see any video or, of it or anything, but it must, must've been pretty interesting to have him just down there on his own as a singles. But uh, for some reason he came back and uh, the high flyers were formed again. If you go to the website, wrestlingdata.com, they have like a whole bunch of 
results from 1979. And I do know Brunzel got some pretty big wins. I think he got a win over Flair. I know he got a win over Patera. I think he got a win over Valentine. So they pushed him pretty hard down there. Yeah, they he, they certainly did. And I don't I don't know the story on that. And I've never been able to ha- had an opportunity to ask Mr. Brunzel that. But um, I've talked to Greg, but not about Jim stuff. But yeah, I've talked to Jim, but I, I didn't bring that up. But yeah. As an AWA champion, he would have been very viable. He just maybe would have needed a mouthpiece, uh, which is part of another question in here. But maybe we could have used a mouthpiece or just been more of a tweener type. I think he would have would have fit in a real nice like Rick Martel championship reign type situation, as it turned out. Yeah, I, I agree. And just go out there and do the Bob Backlund interview. Be very low key. Be very serious. I mean, you know, not everyone's got not everyone's going to be Roddy Piper or Ric Flair, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, right. Uh, let me see. Let me ask the big question because we got about three or four different versions of this question. I'll, I'll go with yeah. Jamie Ward's. Do you think later in life, Vern regretted not coming to an agreement with Hulk Hogan by giving him the belt and giving him a bigger merchandise cut i mean it's a variation of what if hulk hogan never left the awa what if Vern had did whatever he needed to do to keep hulk hogan aboard brad what are your thoughts on this well do i think later in life Vern regretted it or greg regretted it it sure doesn't seem seem like it um in interviews i've seen with greg it doesn't seem like he he has any remorse about that I, i think that you know greg will talk about You'll hear him talk about how Vince bought out the TVs in all of the local markets the AWA had been established in for so many years, more so than Hogan jumping, which I I just I I don't think I don't think Vern, you know, whatever shape Vern was in as he grew older, as we all do. But I don't think that there was any regret for not coming to an agreement with Hogan. Greg tells us the story that Hogan was going to come back in in 91 or something, something just really far fetched. But you know, that tends to happen in wrestling. Wrestlers tend to exaggerate. (laughs) Oh yeah. Uh, (laughs) I don't think Hulk Hogan was going to the AWA in 1991. That's like, that's that's even worse than booking him on an indie. I don't think either one of them have regret, especially Vern who was close to 60 at the time, Mm -hmm. you know, and he's not going to be doing this too much longer anyway. What if Vern just gave Hulk everything he wanted and Hulk stayed? Like, what are your thoughts on that, Brad? Well, Hogan would have had to have gotten the belt. And then I don't know what they would have done with him. I mean, they talked about Hogan's talked about cage matches with Bockwinkle at the time when when he made the jump. And that's what they had booked in the springtime of 84. And that's what the plan was. And he was going to get the belt. But I'm not really sure. You got Jerry Blackwell in there as a heel. You got Nick Bockwinkle, of course. Um, yeah, you got Brody coming in in '84 too. So it's hard to say. You know how it, it probably would have been very similar to the to what happened in the WWF. It probably would have been that there would have been these these heel challengers that Hogan would have you know staved off and kept the belt for a while. Uh, I think for sure. But it's it's hard. It's that's a difficult one one to one to guess. I never really pictured that because I mean, when Hogan left, he left, and it wasn't. Uh, it's at Super Sunday when they did the 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 biggest screw job angle that really started the ball rolling downhill. Were you at that? Yeah, I was. 
was, okay, I, was I know someone else who was out door. there. Yeah, and um, when the ball was rolling downhill, at, right about at that point, that's the turning point. But the fans knew. The fans in the arena could see the finish coming. As soon as Blears takes that bump in the corner, the beer starts flying. And, uh, yeah, it was the second second most crazy thing I ever saw at the St. Paul Civic Center uh, at that finish. So, I yeah. mean, I... My buddy Steve Walsh was also there, and he said yeah. he agrees with you. That was the beginning of the end that the fan felt absolutely screwed. Um, and I will I will ask you what the craziest thing you ever saw at the Civic Center was, but let me stick to this first of all. I, I don't think there's a scenario where Hulk Hogan says yes to Vern Gagne. I mean, if Vince McMahon says, look, I'll make you WWF champion, I'm going to build around you, and I'm – oh, and by the way, I'm going national. I mean – there's not a better deal out there than that, but let's pretend Hogan stays. I mean, yeah. I think what would happen is he would eventually see what was going on in New York and he'd leave, you know, but, yeah. and what would happen, even if, you know, Vern had some blackmail deal on Hogan where he couldn't leave, you know, I think mm-hmm. what would have happened, the AWA would have gone downhill anyway. Hogan's star would have continued to, you know, get smaller and smaller and not much would have changed. I mean, I think the AWA might've had an okay or a better 1984. They, they had a good 1984 anyway, but things would have gone down the drain just the way they did. Just because of the way AWA booked two angles yeah. a year, everything telegraphed. I mean, I mean, this is an American wrestling association that I love and grew up with. This is just the honest truth. They telegraphed everything. They ran on two, maybe three angles a year. It wasn't the most sophisticated booking uh, in the world. It wasn't Florida Championship Wrestling or Championship Wrestling from Florida for that. And as far as the craziest thing I've seen at the Civic Center, that's I got to know. Questions a little later. Can we hold on? Can we hold off on that one? On the okay. Questions I get. Okay. Cool. We'll get All to right. that one. I'll tell All you right. what. Throw out a question for us, sir. All right. What's the name on this one? I'm sorry, my page cut off. Was it Ron Wayne? Oh, I apologize if I get this wrong. Who had the most go-away heat amongst fans? I don't know the AWA very well, but my impression is that they had a lot of talent that overstayed their welcome. Okay. John, do you remember in, in the Observer Newsletter uh, yearbooks, a gentleman oh, yeah. that went, went by the name of Mr. Mike? I remember Ms. Mondo Mike, or Mr. Mike's Mondo Wrestling. Yep. Yep, he was a, a a local guy. I'm not gonna say his name because I don't think he wants it said. Right. I, I I don't. I haven't. I don't think I've ever. I met him maybe once. Anyway, who this gentleman was? He was a huge wrestling fan and stuff. He refused to be in the St. Paul Civic Center. He refused to be inside the arena. He had to be in the outer concourse whenever a Buck Zumhoff match was taking place. That is apparently, as the story goes, a true story. He refused to watch a Buck Zumhoff match. Buck Zumhoff, and as horrible as a human being as he turned out to be, this is the guy, the, the go-away heat guy amongst AWA fans. And um, I know that Wally and Vern were, were perplexed as to how he ever got over in the first place. But yeah, Buck Zumhoff with that. Uh, the only thing I ever saw him do that was really good was Mike Graham came in as the light heavyweight champion in 82, and they had a couple of really good matches locally here. Um, Just to show you how good Mike Graham was. As a heel, too, and he was fantastic. Buck Zumhoff was from Hamburg, Minnesota, and they did the title switch at a little spot shot in Hamburg. And Mike Graham comes on, and he says, 
whoever heard of a world title match in Hamburger, Minnesota? And so it, he was great. He was snarky as a heel, and they worked really well together. But Buck Zumhoff is the shit overall. And the interesting thing, too, and I, it took me a few years to figure this out and to put this together, but when the Fabulous Ones came in to the AWA for the rock and roll, good-looking whatever you know the whole gimmick was, Buck Zumhoff, that's when he was down in world class. So they showed him the door at that point. So, you know, he didn't do much better down there. But the most go-away heat's got to be Buck Zumhoff. I, I remember seeing Buck Zumhoff on World Class Championship Wrestling and immediately hating that guy. I mean, he just yeah. came across as such a phony in that jumpsuit and with the radio. I wanted Skandor Akbar to make that guy eat that radio. I hated him. Oh, uh, Poor Bobby Heenan was married to him for a couple of years. I mean, Heenan got to smash the radio on the ring post on TV a couple of times, two different times, which was great to watch. But um, yeah, Zoom, Zoomhoff with the jumpsuit and the saddle shoes, and he just, he was just confusing what the hell it, that was all about. He was the rock and roller, which was, you know, I don't know. He was playing 50s music. It was, it was, it was on par with Boogie Woogie Dance Hall, I think. Probably the Rick Morton single. <laughs> <laughs> Might have been the same producer. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, but yeah, I've got Buck Zumhoff as my go-away heat. And I'll, I'll tell you, I didn't get to see a lot of AWA wrestling before I started getting tapes, but he, he would probably be my pick, too, although I, I never got into Sheik Adnan El Casey. Mm-hmm. And when they brought in Boris Zukov, I mean, yeah. we've already talked about him, you know, Korsnia Kurchenko was the worst Russian impersonator by far, and Zukov just handed him a muffet basket every Christmas or something. Well, didn't Kurchenko have the only uh, unknown victory over Idi Amin? <laughs> I don't remember what. Where, was it, is, it, is this an Eddie Gilbert thing? No, no, this is uh, Jerry Lawler doing a voiceover for Kurchenko. In Memphis, and he's got the only uh, known victory over Edie Amin. I know I have that on tape someplace or on video. I was unaware of that. That's great. The only recorded victory over Edie Amin. All right. Chris Tabar asks, after Martel wins the title in 1984, how should the AWA have handled their world title? Brad, do you have any ideas? Uh, Tweened him. Really? Yeah, I think so. We've talked about on the past, uh, on past uh, visits here on the podcast, about the match that Martell had with Jerry Lawler in Nashville. Yeah. Martell is a heel. And I watched that recently, and it's fantastic. Of course, Lance Russell makes it great, too. But it's, it's fantastic. The problem was when Martell got the belt, Vern really wanted to shove wrestling, professional wrestling, down everyone's throat, which... The fans were getting more into the entertainment side of things. So he had a run with Backlund. He had a series with Backlund. He had a series with Brad Ringens of two matches at the Civic Center. Oh, my. I've been trying to... Two matches. The first one, the finish was Ringens came up and crotched himself and hit his nuts on the on the top turnbuckle, fell down. Couldn't continue, but Martel refused to take the victory. That's not good. That's not something that's going to have it's, the fans clamoring for a second match. Sir Rudy's got the tape. I, I mean, I, I, I got it to him. 
Yeah, they actually did that. They actually did that as a finish. And the fans were just not buying it. And you got two good performers. Well, Ringens, you know, whatever. But I mean, Martell was a great worker. and But they, the fans didn't care about Bob Backlund here. They had their allegiance and they weren't probably even aware that Backlund was WWF champion. Maybe they were through magazines or whatnot. But um, Martell had matches against Jimmy Garvin that were good. Uh, Michael Hayes that were about as good as you could get out of Michael Hayes and things like that. But I think I would have, I think I would have kind of kept him in the middle a little more. I know that wasn't AWA booking because everything had to be cut and dried, baby face heel, you know, the whole, the whole simple booking situation, the way that they look at everything. But yeah, I would have, I think I would have a match with maybe with Greg or Jim Brunzel. Wait a minute, Brunzel was gone by then. Brunzel's gone by then. But had a match against Greg Ganyan, maybe had some heat, you know, with that sort of thing. Um, but he was a great champion, but not well used. That's that's the way I look at it. No, I, I agree. Here's the thing. I saw the Nashville match with Rick Martell, and Rick yeah. Martell was fantastic. Fantastic yeah. as a heel. Um, the thing is, once you use him like that, my feeling is you just can't go back. Like he's so much of a heel that you, they're not going to cheer for him the next month. But to answer Chris's question, I would have done exactly what the WWF had been doing in the seventies and eighties. Just bring in heel of the month. Occasionally there'll be a rematch. Occasionally, if you get someone really good, do this with Terry Gordy, you have a three match series, but I, I would have been bringing guys in and having them stay for seven or eight months and then having them leave again and you know, keep replacing them. Oh, Gordy's a great idea. Gordy's a great idea. And I don't think Werner Gregg saw the money in the Freebirds. And I don't think the Freebirds were necessarily behaving themselves very well at all by the time they were in the AWA. Yeah, you got the long riders, the Freebirds, and the Road Warriors all in there. And what do you do? Um, but yeah. <laughs> But Gordy, um, Gordy would have been, uh, oh man, a Gordy Martell match would have been fantastic. That's a fantastic thought. Yeah, you can have way more than one match with those two. I mean, you, you know, you do the Backlund Morocco, Backlund Valentine thing where, you know, you have the rematch and then you have a, uh, a second match and then a third match, like a Texas death match or a cage match or something like that. All right, your turn to pop up a question, sir. Jamie Hammer is the Wrestle Hammer Rock time. Rumble the. Yep. <laughs> uh, Hammer time. Is the Wrestle Rock Rumble the most out of touch thing in wrestling history? Yes, it is. Absolutely. <laughs> I've never seen the Pink Room Tag Challenge series. I've never watched any of that. I never watched any AWA, I don't think, after about 88. I didn't see. I just chose not to. I was all in on Rocket. But the Wrestle Rock Rumble was, you know, adjectives fail they really do i i don't know i i mean what year did they have the super bowl shuffle that that was the takeoff on with the chicago bears and and uh and the, it was a and couple the chicago months bears winning was it, was it that was so like was, october still, november 85 okay i would have thought it would have been a couple of years but yeah it was you know having Vern gone your rap and and Bachwinkle, who was actually pretty good uh, as far as a poor lot in that performance, yeah, it's, it, it was it was horrible. And Wrestle Rock was such a strange dichotomy of of stuff. I was there, 
you have never seen a crowd empty out faster than after the final cage match. Was it Waylon Jennings? I can't oh, I even remember. remember. I've blocked it out of my mind. <laughs> if I if I had a nickel for every time I heard that Prince was supposed to play afterward in the Metrodome, I, I can't see Prince doing anything like that, especially in 1986. But still, the whole Wrestle Rock thing, I thought the show was a bore. I couldn't believe uh, I saw Bulldog Bob Brown and uh, Giant Baba and just some of these guys that were way past it. Uh, there was a couple of good matches, but, you know, the main payoff at the end was Vern beating up the sheet again. People just didn't care anymore. But there were some good matches on there. But Wrestle Rock Rumble and the whole Wrestle Rock concept, I think, was it was just a bad atmosphere. You you could put a Rolling Stones concert or a U2 show in, well, I have seen U2 in the Metrodome, and it would still be the shits because that building was so terrible. But, uh, yeah, the, the atmosphere wasn't good, and uh, I don't think they ever marketed the Russell Rock Rumble as a 45, but, you know, if they had, I, I'd have a copy of it, as as I have the uh, the Glenn Gozer uh, wrestling one. <laughs> but, no. Well, I mean, a couple of things. Yeah. Number one, I mean, not sticking to wrestling, back in 83, and this is, an, uh, to me, an amazing story, me and my friends are sitting around saying, okay, what do we want to do tonight? And we're like, and we hear on the radio that U2 is playing the Centrum and there are still good seats. I'm like, wow, mm-hmm. we saw U2 and bought seats the day of the show, which, you know, nowadays you're never going to see. Brad, number two, I mean, I get that he was past prime, but you got to see Bob alive. I mean, that's cool. Yeah, I, I guess it, yeah, it is in that sense. But boy, the crowd didn't know who Giant who Bob he was, was. I know. And even though he'd been in in 79, worked with Bachwinkle in 79 just for one night at the Minneapolis Auditorium. But they just were confused. There was just, it was too much of arcane guys that weren't part of the AWA. And these people are used to AWA booking too. And I think it just threw too many left hooks at them. I don't think it worked. I haven't watched the entire show beginning to end in a long time for a good reason, probably. But I, I just don't think it worked. Wasn't that great to be at? Huh, I, I know it went very long and it had a lot to do with it. I remember the morning. It was April 1986. I'm hanging out mm. watching wrestling. I'm watching the AWA and WPIX, which aired at noon, right mm. after the WWF on Channel 56. And I saw the Wrestle Rock Rumble for the first time. And I mean, I was afraid someone put acid in my Fruit Loops that morning because they yeah. I mean, I didn't know what to think of it. It was both a disaster yet hilariously funny on one level. I went to a party that night. And I brought the tape. and I showed it to everybody. And the reaction was kind of, oh, my God, what's going on here? But it, 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 heat, we all but got the wrong out kind of, of heat, right? The wrong kind of heat. Uh, uh, <laughs> and, you know, Ken Resnick and, oh, good Lord. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's right. the kind of thing that makes you embarrassed. To... <laughs> I mean, right. It, to it, it was funny, but at the same time, it's like, you know, you're not supposed to be this, you know, you're, you're I mean, you just told me Vern Gagne wanted to push wrestling and then they put this complete clown show out there and they've got great Ganya wrestling as Rambo and Jim Brunzel thinks he's Bruce Springsteen. I mean, which one is it? Yeah. <laughs> Matt lands. He Brunzel <laughs> did put out, the, put out the 12 inch single Matt lands, which was a takeoff on Springsteen's Badlands, which I know is in your wheelhouse. 
Yes. Um, but I, it couldn't have been any good. I don't have it um, in the collection. But it couldn't have been too good. But yeah, you're right. Brunzel was, he'd always come out with the Springsteen shirt on and all that. I'm just wondering who sold Vern on actually going into the studio, whatever studio that was, with cameras, with some lyrics or some rap, whatever they would call it, for Jerry Blackwell, for this guy, for that guy. And, you know, who sold Vern on that? Because he had to have been kicking and screaming the whole way. I don't know. I mean, you're, you're like I said, the AWA was, you know, we're, we were serious wrestling on one side, and then we're doing ridiculous gimmicks on the other. Brad, your turn. Let's pick a question. Tom Haig II. The uh, distinction of the second Tom Haig. Hello. Fan of the show. Who made the AWA? The Godfather's War? lawyer. Is is that correct? It must be his that must have been his dad. This is the Tom Haig the second. Wow. All I, right. Well I know it was Tom well, Haig and everyone. Okay. He made the show. Who made the AWA World Championship belt? This is um, a thing of legend. Yeah. When Bachwinkle won the belt in November of seventy five, they phased out the belt that Vern had, had uh, been wearing from I think sixty eight on somewhere in there and then they came out with the big belt that they called the inmate belt and uh Bachwinkle was the first one to have it or i think Vern had just worked it in i i believe Bachwinkle was the first one to really carry it i'm um, pretty sure he belt. was yeah so this is november of 75 and this is prevalent through all of Bachwinkle's first reign of 75 to 80 well the legend is and as far as i know is the inmate belt being that it was made by the license plate people at the Denver uh, prison, the inmates. That's what I heard. And now yep. I kind of question it because they must, I mean, they must've had some really artsy inmates, which isn't out of the question that one guy is really good at designing things. But I mean, I just got to kind of wonder about that story, but I, I like that story better than, oh, yeah, they just had a belt maker make it. So, And Vern had the earlier belt stolen in Iowa from the ringside table. Now, this is where I one of those times in life where I wish I was George Shire or knew a little bit more like he does. Uh, I can't believe I brought him up anyway. But Vern had his belt stolen right off the, 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 the timekeeper's belt. That uh, surprised me. Table. It got it stolen, and it was gone for a a a pretty pretty good period of time, matter of months, I believe. And they found it in somebody's mailbox. Wow! But, but, uh, that that was not the inmate belt. Okay, um, we're going to call it the inmate belt, and I think we're going with the story that it was made by the the inmates in Denver. Nick had it, I believe, at the time of his passing. He was trying to sell it. Of course, Stan Hansen had left his mark on the piece. Uh, with the pickup truck. Yep. But um, yeah, who made the AWA World Championship belt? If we're talking about the 75 to about 85 one, um, that's the story I'm going with. That's what I, yeah, I, I like that story. That, that's the more entertaining story. Matt Mann asked, I'm, I'm going to expand on his question, Bradley. He asked, what was your favorite Brody AWA match? Now, I'm going to ask three questions. What was your favorite Brody AWA match? What was yep. your favorite AWA match? And what do you think the best AWA match you've ever seen is? Okay. 
You asked me what the craziest thing I ever saw at the St. Paul Civic Center was. Yep. That's why I was waiting on this question, and I'm glad that you brought it up. The favorite Brody AWA match and the craziest thing I ever saw in person, and that includes any other promotions, uh, was the night of the Battle Royal and the Jerry Blackwell turn. Okay, now Um, you've been to ECW shows, and you have crazy stories about that, and this is crazier than your ECW stories. Yes. I, I, yes. I need to put on a seatbelt. Go right ahead, sir. Okay. So that night, they, they had telegraphed the Blackwell turn, as AWA does. And then what happened was is they had the Battle Royal in the Civic Center. Uh, I think it was June of 84. And the building wasn't full. They weren't selling out anymore at that point. They weren't selling out the Civic Center. But there was a good probably 12. 12 out of 18,000 in there. I remember the upper deck being a little bit sparse, but uh, you've seen the, the match, I would assume. I have. Um, it's, a, it's a battle royal. Yeah, there's a couple angles that do exist of it. There's an angle of it that I had that uh, Saruti has now shot from the, uh, the rafters, which is kind of a rare angle of it. But anyway, Brody kept going back to the ring after the battle royal to establish that Blackwell is is going to be turning babyface and he keeps beating on him and beating on him. And the Civic Center, it was just like swarming. This was much more intense than Super Sunday when they did the, the screwy finish with Hogan and Bockwinkle. I mean, that was just throwing beer and stuff in the ring and the people were mad. But Brody kept, he was all over the arena on the main floor with a chair I was walking down to the ring thinking it was over because things like Brody just didn't happen in the AWA. And, um, oh God, 1984, I'm 16, I'm 15, 16 years old. And I turn around and Brody's there three feet from me, behind me, with a chair. And some kid's got a hold of the chair and Brody throws a kick at him and says, get the fuck out of my way. Oh, wow. And, and he's going back to the ring, and he goes up and jabs the chair into Blackwell a few more times. It was the craziest thing. And he was chasing kids and throwing stuff, and it was unbelievable. It was an amazing sight. It was it was really, really powerful and really well done, even though, like I said, they telegraphed it the month before in a tag match. But it was Brody did such a great job that night. They had Abdullah the Butcher in as well. And Abdullah the Butcher never worked again in the AWA. They didn't need him anymore because Brody had, you know, overpowered everything and everybody. Best match I ever saw in the AWA has to be one of those high flyers versus Santana Martel. There was uh, three matches, the second of which was, I believe, Martel against Brunzel, where Martel pins him clean in the middle of the ring. But uh, they had bookended that with a couple of matches. In the really, you know, really crazy uh, 1982 summer series. And it was so hot in the building that night. And these guys went almost 60 minutes. And if you've seen, I, are you familiar with these matches? I them? have seen uh, at least one of those matches. And they were yeah. on the Saruti comp. Oh, yeah. They're amazing. The the way they, they, they blow off the, the, the finish, Brunzel throws a dropkick on Tito. And it, it looks like it kills him. It, it, I mean, it literally, it's it's a brilliant finish, and he throws a dropkick on him, pins him in the middle, and it's over. That was as good as I saw. Now, having said that, I was lucky enough, and I consider myself lucky enough, to see Nick Bockwinkle just about every month. Anyone he was in when it was, was good, um, he was the best I ever saw. 
but these tag matches that I'm I'm referring to are are up there. I mean, as a as a match, as being you know, show as being put on as a match, those were the, the greatest things I did ever see in live in the AWA for sure. Uh, anywhere for that matter, I can see that. I will give the stock answer as far as best AWA match. I mean, it was Kurt Henning versus Nick Bockwinkle that aired oh. on New Year's Eve, 1986. I mean, I was trying to think of something that, you know, so I'm not giving the stock answer, but I, I cannot think of one. It was a brilliant match. Mm. And I remember laughing at the beginning of it because you could tell they were going an hour because Rod Trongard was, was thanking everyone in the production crew. And I'm like, okay, this guy's going to run out of cities to talk about. Um, <laughs> my yeah. favorite AWA match was the bloody brawl between the Midnight Rockers uh, and Buddy Rose and Doug Summers. We gave Buddy and Doug lots of love last week on Stick to Wrestling, but th- this yeah. match was phenomenal. All four, four guys juiced. They got blood on the lens of one of the cameras, which I'd never seen before. And that just that added Vegas? to it so much. I believe it was Vegas. Yes. Yeah. It, that was a great match. Yeah. It was, it was a great you... match anyway, but it, yeah, it, it, it was, was my favorite. Match. Yeah. I just love the brawl and it came out of nowhere too. I mean, I remember just, you know, laughing at the midnight rockers, these guys who, you know, okay, we're half the midnight express, half the rock and roll express, a hundred percent lame. And they were great. They, you know, I, yeah. but when they first started, I'm like, oh, my God, these guys are a joke. But they, like I said, they turned out great. Favorite Bruiser Brody AWA match. Let me start by saying that I grew to love Leon White as Vader. When he went to Japan and I think it was 70, uh, 89, I was like, wow, I don't even recognize this guy. But when he was with the AWA in 1986, he was just a rookie and he was kind of out of shape, I thought. And he had a, a TV match with Bruiser Brody where Bruiser Brody just stomped the hell out of him. And it looked like Bruiser mm. was playing a little bit rough, too, which I enjoyed because I hated Leon White that much in 1986. So there's oh. my favorite Bruiser Brody match. And like I said, I grew to love Vader. Don't get me wrong. But in 86, I hated him. I, I, I thought I agree with you. That was great. Having Brody with the Sheik kind of I don't think it gave Brody uh, enough chance to talk. No, and Brody I, was know, a great interview. Just like I work for the Sheik, you know, and, and that he'd do that whole thing, and the Sheik would pull out the briefcase of cash, and Brody was supposed to take out whomever. But Brody was a great interview on his own, as you're saying, and it, um, I think that having him with the Sheik diluted that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, and I get it to the storyline as the Sheik was bringing this guy in. I mean, you know, if it wasn't for Adnan as Billy White. Well, I might not be a wrestling fan right now, believe it or not, but I know it. I, I always thought he was terrible as Sheik Adnan. I'm sorry. Well, you know, the first year, I still will defend his first year in. Okay, I can um, see that. I will admit something that's going to be a little bit embarrassing. Well, it's very embarrassing. Um, I had a few back issues of, of the Weston after mags. And I'm very young in 1981. Uh, I think I was 12 that year in the fall. I thought Adnan L. Casey was Ed Farhat. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, that's, you know, that's showing ass for sure. But, you know, I, I I'd had these old back issues that, that I would send, you know, away for. And they would have the Sheik in there. And, you know, the Sheik was a big deal for 
you know, the mid seventies where I was kind of concentrating my, my interest in these magazines. And, uh, yeah, I thought for like 15 minutes that it was the chic sheet. And, um, you know, they gave Adnan a push where he, he got blood on TV on Tito with the sword. I've seen that. And, and that, you know, yeah, I remember your write up for that. You said AWA does an angle, but I didn't say it was a good angle. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah. I liked Adnan, and I, my first match was Adnan and Bachwinkle uh, in August of 81 uh, in person, and I'll always love it just for that. Oh, yeah, Bachwinkle was a baby up. face. Yeah. And great. Heenan, too. Yeah, Heenan they didn't bring in for the first two matches, and he was there for the third match and was very instrumental in the finish, and he cut the top of his head off at the top of the match, got carried back, and then he came out with the chair. Uh, with the the bandage, the spirit of '76 thing, and the fans went ape shit for him. I, believe I think it. there was a lot of Bobby Heenan love. They in Indianapolis in the '70s, a couple times they false turned Heenan babyface. They teamed him up with Bruiser to go against the Sheik or something, and and, and of course Heenan turns on Bruiser. But Chris Parsons talks about this, and he talks about how you know all the love for Heenan came out in the crowd when he was introduced and. People wanted to, to like those guys because they were so entertaining. So, yeah. I thought they waited way too long to turn Nick Bockwinkle. I was always, you know, even when I was a casual fan, not getting the Observer, I was like, you know, it, it's time to turn this guy. You know, oh. the fans obviously respect him. Oh, the women loved him, too. My grandmother would wet her pants when he'd do an interview. <laughs> um, yes, my, my late alcoholic grandmother, Ruth. What a wonderful lady. But anyway, yeah, she would in Bachwinkle. Have you ever seen Bachwinkle on, what is it, Hollywood Square? Not Hollywood Squares. Um, it was Hollywood Squares. Yeah. Oh, Hollywood wait, Squares. no, it wasn't. It was something else. But I right. have seen it. He's a, uh, he's no, it amazing... was Hollywood Squares. Was it? Thank you, Lou. 1968. Thank you. And the he's monkeys. He's amazing. He's suave. He was in the monkeys. Yep. He was suave. He was sophisticated. And the women just loved him. Nick Bachwinkle was never a heel in his career until late late 1970 when Vern brought him in never was a heel and Nick was almost 40 then and uh yeah I they did wait too long on him and by the time that they did turn him Nick was starting to show his age and and not not in a horrible way because he was in his he was in his 50s but um yeah Bachwinkle would have been a great baby face the fans just, you know, they, they, they loved him when he was the heel against Adnan. I don't know of any other series of matches that he had in, during his first or second reigns where he was the baby face in the AWA territory. Only that one. And I'm just lucky and real happy that I was able to be there and see that. You definitely were. And I think, you know, had they turned Bachwinkle maybe about a year into his second reign after Vern retired, now you're giving him a fresh bunch of opponents as opposed to Bill, you know, Jim Brunzel, Billy Robinson, Greg Gagne, etc. But anyway, mm-hmm. M- Mike Wilson asked, was Bachwinkle the best option in 1986? And if he wasn't, who should have had the run? What do you think, Brad? Mm-hmm. Now, is this when uh, Stan Hansen loses, uh, gave up the belt? Exactly. And, and Bachwinkle got it again. Yep. Without beating anybody 
Uh, and I noticed that too in '86. Bockwinkle did not beat anybody. '81 and '86, yeah. That's another black mark on the AWA. You got to figure. I don't know how they could have worked Kurt in because he was ready in '86. Bockwinkle probably was. They're thinking transition. I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, my answer would be okay. Look, Bockwinkle was the scheduled opponent when Hanson walked out. So if you're going to do it that way, okay, put the belt on Bockwinkle, get mm-hmm. on TV and stay, you know, hey, Stan Hansen chickened out, and that's a forfeit, and Bockwinkle wins. And what they did eventually, I thought, made sense, put it on Kurt Henning. The oh. problem was, in my opinion, that they waited a year to do it. Like yeah. six more months, maybe even four more months of Nick Bockwinkle would have worked. I loved Nick Bockwinkle. Don't anyone get me wrong. But by this point, uh, he had first won the title in 1975 and he's got it again in 1986. And there's barely been any AWA without him having the championship. I mean, it's always in the picture. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's time to move on to someone else. And I would have done that much more quickly with Kurt Henning, but that would have been my guy. Yeah. Kurt Henning was, was, was right in there. And I think, I think that those two honed their matches, and I think Bockwinkle led him by the hand through those matches. I think Kurt Hennig pinned him, I think, in 86, and no, that there's no title in the picture, 85 or 86 at the Civic Center on Christmas Day night in a great match. But yeah, Bockwinkle yeah. transitioning to Hennig, I, I think that's probably your best option. I think it is your best option. At that point, I'm trying to think of what the roster was like. They were going back to the tag heavy stuff at that point. So it's hard to say. Yeah. Um, off the top of my head. Yeah. I mean, you know, they had, no, that's okay. They had, you know, the, like you said, they were transitioning. They, they still had great Ganya, who I don't think would have been a good option. Um, no. Michaels and Janetti were just starting off. Um, yep. They had, they had Bruno Sa- or David Sammartino, forget it. Uh, that's, uh, that's really the only baby faces I can think of. And I think it was time for the AWA to have a baby face champion, even though that's not what Kurt Henning a- ended up being. No, but he was, when he got it, he was, he, he was ready. He had been ready for a little while. I, I was completely amazing. agree. There's one question in there. That I don't think we'll get to, but there's one question about, you know, did they do enough with Kurt? And they did all they could. He was, By the t- he was bound to leave, you know? Yeah, by by the time Kurt left, it was really, you know, just time to leave. Uh, He had grown too big for the AWA. I I think maybe, you know, months, maybe even a year before he actually left, it was like, okay, time to go. Your turn to pick a question, sir. Okay. Okay, I got one. I think I got one left here. Richard Conroy. Richard J. Conroy. What did Vern do to Lanza to cause him to stooge to Vince, or was it the money? This is an interesting one because apparently Jack Lanza was a stooge for Vince during this whole situation where Vince is taking over worldwide or as far as the United States goes. And uh, Lanza was reporting back to Vince while working for Vern in the office. Now, Lanza for several years had been booking Winnipeg because they needed the Canadian content and they had to do completely different things out of Winnipeg. Not completely different things, but they had little angles that they would do uh, that would be exclusive to Winnipeg. And that was Lanza was in charge of that. 
I'm at a loss. I don't really know if, if Lanza was paid off. You've got to believe that that's a, a big possibility. The question is worded, what did Vern do to Lanza? Lanza was probably just fed up. I don't know. He went on to work for Vince for decades. So I don't know. Have you heard anything about this, this Blackjack Lanza situation? Are you familiar with that at all? I mean, there there are always rumors. I mean, Lanza yeah. had been out of the business for at least a couple of years before he reappeared in the AWA and became a babyface and started wearing a white trunks and a white <laughs> cowboy hat, which was a pretty, you know, wow, look at this in the magazines. I've heard the story, you know, I'm and eventually he wound up working for Vince. So you, you never know what's true and what's not in wrestling as far as rumors go. but. I mean, I, I am inclined more to believe that than not believe it because, I mean, I know Vince had stooges. I know he had stooges yeah. in uh, WCW and Crockett owned it. I know he had stooges in WCW after Crockett sold it to Turner. And by the way, just you know everyone knows what Brad was referring to. Uh, I don't know if they still have this, but in the 80s, Canada, the nation of Canada had a rule where it's like, we're not just going to play American programming. You know, you have to have a certain amount of Canadian content in order for that to appear on, on Canadian television. So that That's I remember right. going up to Montreal in like 84 and they've got a completely different WWF TV show on. And I later found out that that's why. Yep. Yep. Canadian content. I think it had to be a certain percentage. But it was a high percentage. If I can make a make a make a comment about oh, yeah. uh, a situation that I saw when Blackjack Lanza had turned babyface and was wearing the whites and everything, and then he was, you know, Heenan had double crossed him on a payoff or something like that. They did it in Winnipeg, but anyway, they had like I think it was a bunkhouse match. Anyway, they were dressed in like jeans and boots and flannel shirts type thing at the Civic Center, St. Paul Civic Center, where Lanza's the babyface against Heenan. And there was a rope involved and Heenan did the bump to end the match with, you know, with blood, of course. And Lanza wrapped the rope around him, throws him across the ring and jerks him back. Kind of like, I think he did it with Patera too, Heenan. I, I try to forget that whole situation, but Heenan did this bump where he, you know, the neck snap and he, he comes back and, and Heenan had a broken neck during that time. He broke his neck in 82 or 83 and this was after he had his broken neck. And I was like, I, when I look at it now and see the film, the footage, I'm thinking, Jesus, Heenan really gave, gave it his all. I mean, he's got a broken neck and he's taking a, a, a rope bump on his neck. Uh, amazing. Just amazing. But uh, yeah, that was a match he had with Lanza when, when Lanza was a baby face and trying to beat the hell out of Heenan. Heenan may night. have been the greatest bump taker of all time. And I'm not saying yeah. the greatest bump taking manager. I mean, like out of everyone, I've seen him take bumps that, I mean, are you trying to break a leg, Bobby? What's up? Yeah. He was, he was phenomenal. Yeah. And he was, he, he credits Ray Stevens for that, for learning a lot of those bumps, but he was taking them, uh, some film footage, uh, surface of, the Dr. X Dick Byer unmasking thing from Chicago from the Aragon Ballroom from 1970. And Heenan hadn't been working with Ray Stevens in 1970. And Heenan still takes a crazy bump in the corner. And it's really grainy. You can't see him get the color and everything, but he takes a crazy bump. 
he was just amazing from, yeah, he probably, probably the greatest bump kicker of all time and not jumping off cages, not doing, you know, gratuitous bumps, but yeah, just saving matches. And after a match, when Bachwinkle would get a screw job, win, uh, you know, getting beat up and it, he was amazing. He was amazing. Can't believe we hadn't talked about him tonight, but you know, that that's the way it goes. We, we let it flow, right? <laughs> oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, I remember reading Bobby Heenan's book. This is like 15, 20 years ago. And Bobby, you know, really shedding some light on psychology. He's like, you know, if you have a match in the ring with two guys, okay, well, those two guys are going to do the best they can. When you have a manager outside the ring, now you've got three guys interacting. And, he, yep. you know, I forget exactly how he broke it down, but it, it totally made sense. Now you've got three people out there entertaining the, the fans, and it works. He was something else. All right, I've got time for one more question. Yeah. Sam Nord, the Barbarian, asked, even <laughs> acknowledging that ESPN in the mid-'80s was, wasn't as prestigious as it was today, how could the AWA have been better used the valuable ESPN time slot to stay relevant and competitive with the WWF and JCP? And I just want to make our, our younger fans aware that mm-hmm. – Back in 1985, ESPN was not the monolith that it was today. I mean, you tune in on primetime and you'd see like, uh, what, what was the name of that sport the Malachi brothers did? Like, uh, <clears throat> Malachi brothers <laughs> on happy days, uh, crash derby or something like that. They oh, would, yeah, yeah, they would show ha- have this on like primetime. It was nuts. Um, they. They had the National Hockey League, but it wasn't as big as it could have been. Uh, no. they, they did in the in the in the eighties, uh, early eighties, I believe. But the, as far as the the ESPN show, the production was so bad. Production was really bad, and that I don't think that Showboat Casino showroom looked particularly great on TV with all those empty chairs. Yeah, <laughs> but they had a couple of great matches really, really did surface there. So, you know, you got to bring that into account. But um, yeah, I think production wise, it just looked really minor league. I, I think to, to answer Sam's question, like the first yeah. thing I, I think I've said this on the show before, but if I were running the AWA, I would ask for a meeting with the highest ranked person I could find in the AWA. And I would say, look, you know, one thing that's very important in wrestling is that we have a a week to week thing where it's uh, what's the word I'm looking for. It's consistent. And the AWA kept getting preempted. And, you know, I remember Mm -hmm. 85, 86 wanting to watch it. And I never knew when it was going to be on or if it was going to be on. And that was really frustrating. I would have sat down with them and said, look, you know, please put us in a spot where you're not going to preempt us, even if it's not as desirable as spot as nine o'clock on Tuesday night. I would have asked for a one hour show that started at five o'clock on Saturdays, give a nice little lead in to the, you know, the WTBS show. But I, I think that really hurt the AWA on ESPN that you just didn't know oh, when it was going to sure. be on. Sure. They, they had the right idea for at least one night. I remember. I think the last night Stan Hansen had the belt, they were live from Oakland. Yes. And this was a Blackwell against Hansen match with some juice. And it was, it was, it was okay. Um, but I thought it was I good. The next night in Denver. Yeah. I thought the next night in Denver, I think that's when, when Hansen had the, uh, the meltdown. Um, yep. but 
they had the right idea with that if they could go and show live. Or I believe it was live. I want. I want. It was. it was live. I think. Yeah, it was live. It was a good idea. Um, it looked pretty good. The the building was small enough and had a balcony where it didn't look empty. Um, the lighting wasn't the best, but that sometimes is okay. But yeah, I thought that was that was that was the right idea. But no, they were pre- preempting them for tractor pulls, and they just you know ESPN just didn't really know what to do with them. I don't think. Nah, I I agree with you. I mean, like I yeah. said, they they needed to be consistent, even if you had a less desirable spot where you you didn't get preempted. I thought that was really important. Um, yeah. But anyway, all right. Well, we have done an hour of, of wrestling. Brad, thank you for being on and sharing your AWA experience with us. And as we sometimes do here on Stick to Wrestling, we're going to give you a little bit of bonus non-wrestling content. And we're not going to stick to the wrestling. We're not going to stick to wrestling for about 15 minutes. Brad and I are, I think Brad is a bigger fan than I am, but we are both big fans of David Bowie. So why not talk about our favorite David Bowie albums? It's me. So I've got to do like a top whatever, and we'll do a top five. Brad, what was your favorite or your fifth favorite David Bowie album? Oh shit. Fifth favorite David Bowie album. Oh boy. You caught me off guard. I don't okay. have them ranked. You, I don't have them ranked. What um, I do have in front of me, John, if I if I may, yes, is a green colored vinyl bootleg that I, I know how I know what the low record means to you. Okay. Uh huh. Is that I have, it, I have it as number record? two. Okay, you have it as number two. David Bowie Low Live, and it's uh, it's on green vinyl. It says in 1976 or thereabouts, I presented an album to my then record company RCA. They sent me a telegram and said, if we give you the money, would you please go back to Philadelphia and redo Young Americans? We don't want this thing you've given us. So I would like to represent this album again 25 years later. The album is low. And it's uh, played for the first time in its entirety live at the Roseland Ballroom in New York on June 11th, 2002. I got to get that recording to you, John. (laughs) They play the album from beginning to end of low. And I know how much you love that record. Now, that strikes me as weird because low, I remember getting it, and this is back when we actually listened to records, <laughs> you know, like these, like, things that are flat, and you put on, play on a record yeah. player, and the first side of it, oh, was, yeah. I thought was incredible. I mean, seven incredible songs that spoke to me. I mean, I remember listening it, to it in the 80s. I'm like, okay. This song is about this relationship with this I had with this girl, yep. and somehow Bowie knows about it. Oh, and yeah. this next song is this relationship that he Bowie somehow knows about because he's singing about this girl practically. Yeah, and then you flip it over, and it's in my opinion this awful instrumental nonsense he and Brian Eno did as a a vanity project. The first side was good enough to more than make up for that, in my opinion. Just, okay, well, we got a 20-minute album here. But I'm I'm wondering how they did 20 minutes worth of that instrumental. Or did they? They did. Side 2, Warsawa, Art Decade, Weeping Wall, and Subterraneans. They did. They played the whole thing live. I haven't listened to it in a while, but um, I do have it. Uh, I have, I think I have every David Bowie record that exists on vinyl um excepting a couple okay but um you know you want to do the top five i'm so sorry i was, no that's okay we can speak in I general i mean yeah 
one thing that I hear this might be a controversial opinion about David Bowie. As I started to, I don't know, get more money, I'm like, okay, I can be less choosy about what CDs I buy. Let's Mm -hmm. get David Bowie's entire back collection. And his first couple of albums were horrible, I thought. Uh, Space Oddity, the first one, and then The Man Who Sold the World. Uh, I don't like Space Oddity very much. Uh, as you don't, I like the man who sold the world a lot. Uh, it's the first time Mick Ronson is actually playing with him. And it's a very hard rock album, but I can see how it might not be everybody's cup of tea. Okay. I've got an album just called David Bowie. That was released. Okay. There, there was actually two just called David Bowie and they, I thought they were absolutely awful. Um, Oh, the sixties ones. Yeah. The early ones before he was really. Okay, okay, I understand what you're saying now. You're talking about he's talking about Space Oddity and then the, the early ones with the, the quirky 60s singles. Oh, yeah. yes, that, that's the best way to put it. It was like quirky 60s music, and I think I listened to this thing once, and I was like, oh, my God, I just threw yeah. $12 in the toilet. But <laughs> most of his album, and I got to admit, I, I lost interest uh, maybe towards the end of the 80s. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I got what was the name of that album? Earthling. And David was kind of, you know, a couple of good songs, but David was doing some pretty out there stuff for my taste. Do you have a a favorite David Bowie album? Yeah, I I love Earthling. I saw that's the only time I saw him. Um, It's not my favorite record, but I just got to sidetrack it just for a moment. That's the only time I ever saw him. I saw him in the St. Paul Auditorium, which is where Bachwinkle won the AWA title. And the building had been cut in half by this point. This is about 96. I saw him um, on that tour. He was great. My favorite David Bowie record, I can never decide between Diamond Dogs and Station to Station. Okay. I've got to split hairs on that one. Probably Station to Station. Station to Station, I think, was my number five. Let me get that back up here. Yep, number five. My favorite David Bowie album was Lodger. Very out. Yeah, what now? You don't like that one, apparently. Uh, no, I just, I'm interested to hear what you have to say about it. Of all the David Bowie records I have, I think it probably gets the least airtime. But yeah, what, 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 talk to us. What do you? What, why do you like Lodger so much? With, I mean, I, it may have been a time and place thing because 1979 is still my favorite year in music, and when that came out. I mean, it really stood out as something that was completely different. It it, it kind of, I don't know, was a balance between like weird, like, you know, Diva was just weird and, you know, something that was too buttoned up. Like he tried experimental things. He, a lot of experimental sounds. And I remember buying the album and hearing it for the first time and absolutely loving it. Roger has DJ on it? Yes. Okay. Interesting. I sure love Scary Monsters, the follow-up. Lost complete interest in the 80s. Let's Dance. Let's Dance sucked. It's largest. Yeah, it's mega stardom. I was working in a record store late. Pretty cool record store, I think, in hindsight. Lickety, very, very, very early 90s when Tin Machine came out. Uh-huh. We all freaked out the day Tin Machine came out because we're playing. We're like, oh, my God, Bowie's back. Not knowing that the thing would age as horribly as it has. The Tin Machine stuff. <laughs> At the time, we were really excited about it. 
I am kind of a like I, I love David Bowie. If you like me, thank David Bowie because he's part of what made me me. Yeah. Um, but he, like I said, it, it was I liked his 70s and early 80s stuff mm-hmm. more than the rest. Yeah. A couple of quick things I remember reading in the Boston Phoenix and like mid 82 that, yeah, next year, David Bowie's coming out with a new album that's going to be very commercial driven. And we think, you know, they were saying, oh, yeah, he's going to be doing uh, stadiums next summer. And I was like, wow, that's mm-hmm. that's great for David Bowie. Well, it turned out he did one stadium. It was the uh, Schaefer Stadium in Foxborough, Mass. And um, that was like the only one he did. But he drew a great he, he drew a sellout crowd. As a matter of fact, the my girlfriend. Spider. Yeah. Yeah, my girlfriend went, uh, her friends got tickets, and I got to stay at home. And let me see, little uh, Lodger Story, my favorite David Bowie album. Um, yeah. I remember, you remember back in the day, you'd go to a, a record store, and you'd look through, like, you know, your favorite bands, and all of a sudden, like, one of them would have a new album out. Like, surprise, yeah. bang. Yeah. All and the time I, with Rush, I didn't know the release dates. Yeah. My favorite band of all time, and I didn't know the release dates. I'd just check them. And, oh, Grace Under Pressure. Here we go. You know, 1984. And that's how we'd find out. There was no yeah, exactly. internet, no no, no newsletters, really. I mean, there were, but, I mean, you know, you, that's what you would do. You'd flip through the bins and you'd find something new. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, there, I don't even remember, like, Musicland or Sam Goody or anything like that having, like, new release, you know, things that they would push, like, for a Bowie record. But no, my God, I, did he cover a lot of ground in the 70s? Holy moly. He's about four or five careers worth in just the 70s decade. Yeah. Holy um, smokes. Yeah. No, and I remember, like, you know, like going through, okay, let's see if The Clash puts something out. Oh my God, Sandinista. Well, mm-hmm. in 79, I'm going through, you know, all my favorite bands, and there it is, Lodger. And yeah. I, I get home, I'm what, 13 years old. And I call my first ever girlfriend. You and I had a conversation about this woman. And uh-huh. I'm like, hey, Jill, um, there's a new David Bowie album now. I'm really excited. And she's she tells me that I can't open it. So she asked me, have you opened it? I'm like, no. She's like, don't open it. We'll listen to it together oh, and cool. tomorrow or the next day. And I went for this. <laughs> I'm like, OK, I'll do that. Oh. Yeah. And I mean, the Bowie records were so dense in that sense. You'd have to listen to them several times to get the, the feel for them. But that's a cool experience to listen to it with your girlfriend for the first time, especially when you you've waited overnight to, to listen to it. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's, I, I that's wanted cool to listen experience. to it right away. And I yeah. followed the instructions. <laughs> I bet she's got a little bit to do with the fact that you really love that record. Uh, you're probably <laughs> Maybe the right. Experiences. Yeah. I, you know what, though, sure. to, this, to this day, I, I, I like that record. But oh, sure. Yeah. If I could you know, go back in time and see one performer that I've never seen live, it would be either John Mellencamp or David Bowie. You know what? It would be David Bowie. Yeah. All when right. I saw him, he was doing the drum and bass thing for Earthling, and I happened to really like that. And, um, you know, that he's put out, well, he hasn't put out, but the, the state has put out some records, some live records from that, that time period. And I, I enjoy them. And it's just the uh, Glass Spider stuff that I really wasn't that into. And like like you like you mentioned earlier, um, the '60s stuff he was doing on the Durham label was goofy. Yeah, but otherwise, I was, what, what an amazing talent! I was pretty embarrassed to have you know purchased those records, but no. I did. And, no. and like I said, the guy found himself. 
sure did. All right. That is your bonus content for this week. Stick to wrestling listeners. I want to thank all of you for checking us out. Brad, thanks for coming back on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me back on. All right. And I want to thank our producer, Luke Hippelman, for all the great work he does. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day. 